We are uh, walking through this series we're calling Christmas from waiting to celebrating and I get the privilege of sharing with you and um, you know we were talking about how this was going to go this morning and people were wondering when is when is the screen going to roll down because um, we're used to seeing you know whoever's sharing they have to be much bigger uh, in order for us to feel comfortable here right and so I apologize that you know I'm much smaller in person uh, than the screen would portray. But we've been walking through this series and uh, we thought it'd be good for us to kind of, you know, to think about how we would approach it this weekend. And, you know, one of the things that come to mind in terms of the holidays is that Christmas is a great reminder that God does not shy away from the real, as we just saw. But he very much steps into it, perhaps even proactively. Then he invites us to discover the joy of laboring with him, to see what love would produce, the labor for love. It's a beautiful thing when we understand how uh, important Christmas is. And I don't know about you, but it just seems to me like, um, maybe it's just me, but have you noticed that Christmas uh, is a season in which the ideal is really propped up? Everywhere we go, the ideal of Christmas is what we are presented with. You ever felt that way? You ever felt like Christmas, the ideal picture of Christmas is one where we're always joyful and happy? You ever watch a Christmas movie, especially a Lifetime one or a Hallmark one? You ever watch those? They're like just eternally bent on the optimistic. And the ugly is just like maybe, you know, it's, it's, it's a small dip in the plot line because there's a great optimistic bent on the film. You ever felt a little disconnected from that? Have you ever heard a Christmas carol and heard the joy of it, but internally you may not feel the joy of it? You ever been there? You turn the, the, the radio out of that station? Now, I don't even know if we listen. Maybe you change the Spotify station. I'm not sure. Pandora, whatever, right? But there's something about this season that it really elevates the ideal. And it's nice. If, if, if we're there, if we're in that place where we can genuinely say we're in a season where we're joyful, where our relationships and our careers and the places we're in just produces joy out of us, this is a great season for us. And that's awesome. But you know, the reality is if we're not in that place, if we're in the place where we can't say that, where for whatever reason we could say, you know what, I don't have the perfect family. My relationships aren't actually the way I would want them. My friendships aren't in the places where I would want them. My career is not what exactly I would love to be operating in. If we have problems and struggles and there are weaknesses that prop up, I don't know why. It just seems that this season is one of those seasons where having those realities in our life against that contrast and backdrop, it could almost intensify how dramatic the difference is. Some of us, I recognize, may not live in the city. But this week is, is a week for our city. It's very different than most. It's our mayor, even right now, I believe, is a service, memorizing his life, memorializing it, really. And to be able to be brought such news, can you, can you imagine what it must be like be part of that family in this season. And this is not supposed to be the season of sadness and sorrow. This is the season of joy in life. 
But to walk into that place, we might think, if we're not careful, that really, this is kind of indicative of how it looks like to operate with God. The season that most elevates Him is so idyllic. If we're not careful, we can start to think that in order to embrace Him, we ourselves must be in that place. And something can happen. A discrepancy between what I would call the ideal and the real can start to appear. I remember when I was a child, I was around 10 or 11 years old. This was one of those periods in the year. It was one of the two times my family would make their way to church. Easter would be the other one. And I remember we would get dressed up and everybody was kind of, you know, my uncles would come over and cousins and we would either have a procession to church or we would meet at the church parking lot and we'd all walk together and the families would be and my mom would emphasize how well behaved I needed to be. And she would emphasize this several times because she knew, she knew it was, was going to be a miracle. But she would, she would emphasize this, right? And we would sit in the pews and I remember the, the, the communicator would come up and he would start speaking and I knew I understood English but I did not understand him. And looking back, it was because it was Latin. But he was speaking um, a message around Christmas that was kind of, you know, meant to be cheerful and joyful. And I, I would see people around me. Even at 10, 11 years old, I would see people around me. They were happy. And, and, and the parties were happy. And I would wonder why everyone is so happy. Because even at 10 or 11, I couldn't actually say that was true inside of me. There was some real stuff happening. Stuff that didn't show up until years later, later in my teen years. There was some real stuff happening, and there was a disconnect between what I saw around me and what was going on within me. The real and the ideal. And it doesn't just happen at Christmas. I think it happens in all places of the year. I think it also happens in places of life, in our careers. We might think we're stepping into something. We have a vision or imagine what it might be like or a relationship we're pursuing. And the ideal and the real are so different. It happens. It happens. It happened to my wife and I. This is a Christmas unlike any other for us. It's the first Christmas we have an addition to the family. It is not a cat or a dog. <laughs> and I remember stepping into that labor room when we had having our child. I had a picture of the ideal. Because they don't show the real. No one will pay to watch that, okay? <laughs> but when I experienced the real, oh my. What I expected was a clean baby smiling at me. <laughs> and when I held it, it would just look at me and we would have this moment that was magic. What I saw was far messier and not pretty. It got me to a point of concern where I asked the doctor several times, is her head going to be like that <laughs> the rest of her life? Do I need to prepare myself for, for different oval-shaped hats and beanies? You know? Did the cone head thing really happen to us? You know? There are other details I won't share. Um, <laughs> but they were real. They were real. It's, how, it, it's something that happens within our culture. It's certainly true if we're familiar with any type of social media. If we look through our feeds, you know what we won't find? We won't find selfies of the ugly, the messy. We won't find the warts and the honest. It's really hard to find that. You know what we will find? 
in our feeds and other people's feeds is the result of 50 pictures. One of them was chosen and edited. Lighting was carefully situated. And everyone had to smile or be intentionally messy to provoke something. What we see is the best. And that, that can create a little bit of frustration. And this is why Christmas is so important. This is why it's good for us to recognize the reality is that God decided to step into the real. And what we could think of if we live this life long enough is that there is, a, there is a, an ideal we strive for and we want and we desire and we hope for. And we elevate. It is, it is something within our soul that calls us to it. And yet there is the reality. And if we're not careful, we could start to imagine that this life is about ideal versus real. And that they are in opposition to one another. And so some of us would say, you know what? I don't want the ideal. I want to be a realist. Because that only breaks my heart. Because I will be disappointed and I'd rather not be. And so I will only live in the real. And others of us say, you know, there, there's such opposition here. I don't, I don't want to talk about real. I'd rather live at least trying in the ideal. And what we see is that Christmas, Christmas brings the ideal human, the ideal being, the most perfect person that has ever walked the face of the earth, stepping into a situation that couldn't be more real, couldn't be more messy, couldn't be more filled with pain and sorrow. It's, it's an amazing thing. When we recognize the beauty of Christmas is God steps into those places and then invites us to labor with him to see what love would produce. If you open up your handout, we'll go ahead and take a look at a couple passages. One of them is found in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke creates this narrative that I think gives us a, an amazing insight into what exactly was going on from a heavenly perspective. And we're told in Luke 2, and this is now, remember, several thousand years ago, but Luke is writing to a friend named Theophilus. And he is a physician, by the way, by trade. And so he is speaking, he is writing, and he's choosing his words carefully, which makes what he highlights and what he cho chooses to highlight very important for us to understand. We're told in verse 1 that he says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration, that is a census was given, from Kyrene, who... It was when Quirinius was governor of Syria. What, what Luke is saying here to Theophilus that he would not need to explain. He would not need to explain the significance of Caesar Augustus. But we who are removed from that point in time would probably, it would be helpful for us to just consider a little bit of historical uh, context. See, what we're being told here is that Caesar Augustus, first of all, what we have to understand that is he was Rome's first emperor. That in itself is significant, but his name was actually Caius Octavius. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar, who was the revered general of Rome, who was also betrayed. But Caesar was a name. So Octavius ended up taking on a different name. It was not his original. It was something of a curated 
idealized name. And he goes, he, he ends up taking on the name of his great uncle in honor of him, Caesar. And then he ends up in his circle of counsel asking them to create something far different because this man would be the man who would inherit a power structure, a seat of power that was meant to be shared with a people who were seeking to be self-governed, the world's first republic. And by the time he leaves that seat, he has stripped his empire of any ability to govern by themselves. He is now something far different. He is the emperor. He is the most powerful human in the world. In an empire that stretches far, far larger than we could ever imagine, stretching from India to Great Britain at its peak and the entire northern part of Africa. It's an unbelievable distance, this empire stretched. And what we're told here is that Caesar, Octavius, Asked them to create something of a title for him. He longed to be a man not known as a dictator, which is what he was. In fact, a king wasn't even good enough. He asked them to create something different, and they created this word, Augustus. He would be Caesar Augustus. Because it was a word that was meant to give not just the sense of reverence for somebody occupying a power a seat of power, but it was meant to have the connotation of deity. It was a man who was trying to move his people from a place of respecting his earthly authority to adoring his divinity in a religious fashion. That is the setting. A man who is so delusional he decided to elevate himself. And listen, he wasn't a man in delusion without any power. He was at the height of it. In fact, he's credited as the man who ushered in what is called the Pax Romana. Many historians, I know this is getting a little to the weeds, but we have to understand this. It, it view it as a period in history without war. It's Pax means peace, Romana Rome, the Roman peace. And we're told history would show us and it celebrates it as this period in the world in which there was peace across a vast stretch of territory. But what is not really celebrated is that the way this peace was achieved was a man who decided to wield the Roman military, bludgeoned his enemies so severely, conquered anyone who would dare lift their neck toward him. There was no option except to submit to Roman power. And so it was not a peace as much as it was the result of a destruction that roamed throughout. This is the backdrop in which Luke says, here, in the place that a supreme power figure is elevated, and what he doesn't know, you see the contrast, is that the one who's truly in power ends up using him for heavenly purposes.
We're told here that this census becomes something of a movement and Joseph ends up getting caught. Joseph also went up from Galilee in verse 4 from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David which is called Bethlehem, that is the house of bread because he was of the house and lineage of David. That is, he had royal blood within him. He needed to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And what we're told here is that in the midst of this, it's almost as if Luke is painting a picture of contrast. He's saying, Theophilus, remember, there, remember, remember, Caesar Augustus, the great elevated figure of human history that even now is revered all throughout history as one of the great power figures in, in, in empire lore. He says, that, that's what was going on. You know what was also happening, though? What everyone else was focused on, there was something else going on. And I asked him to put this map up of, of this region of the world, which would be Nazareth to Jerusalem to Bethlehem. You see, Nazareth, the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem was in about 85 miles or so. And what he, Luke is saying is, is in the midst of this great enthronement of a figure who was delusional to the point of thinking he was divine, who was celebrated as such. There was this insignificant couple in this marginalized part of the world. It's almost as if he's building it. He's saying, if he, if he represented royalty and power and wealth and prestige, what would, they, what would they represent? They would represent what no one else is paying attention to. They would represent the ones who are ordinary, powerless, insignificant, the ones who are poor, uh, the ones who have been subjugated unjustly, the ones who have been marginalized on the edges of life, literally on the edges of an empire. And in the midst of that insignificant property and territory are two people who no one would ever know. And if all the world was paying attention to Rome, all of heaven was paying attention to Bethlehem. The contrast couldn't be sharper. It seemed as if this place, this location, were two ordinary individuals marching under a dictator's orders who had a woman whose womb was carrying the savior of the world, who had a man whose purpose seemed to guard that woman. Events that may seem so inconvenient the most, I cannot imagine what it must have been like to have a nine-month pregnant woman riding on the back of a donkey for 85 miles. I can imagine 20 minutes in a car on smooth paved roads. And I can tell you that was frantic. That was tense. 85 miles. Could not be more inconvenient. Cannot be more uncomfortable. Could not be more frustrating. Could not be more humiliating. And yet we're told this is how God orchestrated things. The eyes of God did not see it as something insignificant, saw it as something amazing about to occur. We're told in verse 6 that while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, that is Mary, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them 
at the end. In light of what we see according to if we were to put ourselves in perspective of what is going on above the picture of what the world and the culture would tell us is most important, what we see is that actually, according to God, the little puppet is the emperor of Rome. Can you just hear that for a minute? The one who thought he controlled all was actually a small piece. The one who thought he was the most significant was actually a footnote meant to mark a point in history to what was truly significant and what was actually happening. The one everyone celebrated as the deified king and the greatest empire in the world was actually only serving the purposes of God. Can you imagine? That is just fascinating to think about. It is fascinating. And even now, even now, one could make their way over to that region of the world and walk through. You know what we walk through when we get there? It's historical. It's amazing. The engineering feats are amazing. But you know what we walk through? You know what they're called? They're called ruins. That is all that is left of what once was idealized. That is all that's left. Stones upon another, dilapidated, run down by time that respects no one. This contrast could not be sharper. It's almost as if what God was saying is something different. There was a despot and a cruel human being on the throne of power. And yet G. Campbell Morgan said it best. He said, listen, heaven came down, our souls to greet, and glory crowned the mercy seat. Not the conquering, overcoming, overpowering, subjugating, but the mercy seat. The most powerful being in the universe. Coming coming humbly, gently, tenderly, vulnerably. The birth of Jesus. Listen, it was beautiful, and at the same time, if we were honest, it is so sad. Honestly. Why is it sad? Well, if we were to look at it with any degree of objectivity, we heard it a little bit, but it would be something we would look at with great pity. Why? Because in the moment when Mary should have been cared for and had her family around and her friends attending to her every need, what would we see? We see a woman who is completely alone with her husband. And in a moment where the most vulnerable and the most tender and the most beautiful moment in that family's life was happening, They are told, there is no room for you here. You should go where the animals are. There's room there. And what we, we think of what is sanitary and what is clean and what in the moment where there should be more than enough support, there is an abundance of abandonment and isolation. And loneliness. This this is the real picture of Christmas. It is the real picture. To, To see it any other way is to not acknowledge what is currently happening. And yet it is the reason. Look, we look upon her and we feel compassion, even sorrow, that she brought forth the greatest human being ever conceived. She swaddled him and there was no one to help, no one to to care, no one to clean. 
first bed was an animal feeding trough. <laughs> that's the real. That's the real. The ideal. Micah gives us a picture of the ideal. What Christmas ideally would be like. In Micah 5, 650 years before this happens, we're told that he says to them, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is a ruler in Israel, whose come, coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Look at this. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. That's tremendously good news. And then the best news. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Ideal. This is the ideal. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, he shall dwell secure. Ideal. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Mike is saying the coming of Jesus is going to be the ideal picture of a man who will raise up and lead his people to peace and security. And if we only look at the ideal, we will be confused and despondent when we recognize this man who would be raised up to be the greatest leader Israel ever had was born in a group, in a people group, in a family that was conquered, that was enslaved to a foreign authority, that was, was not powerful enough to be able to dictate their own terms, but they had to acquiesce to a despot's desire to have a census, and yet the whole time that frustration and that anxiety and that fear and that loneliness actually was part of the beautiful thing God was writing for the ideal stepped into, not with trumpets and not with military and not with thrones, but stepped into a place of utter dependence, vulnerability, into the ugly mess into the marginalized and poor. From the very beginning, his tone was meant to evoke just what kind of God he represented. It's an amazing thing. Christmas is an amazing thing. And that alone, you know what that tells us there? It tells us that there may be areas in our lives we could call them maybe the manger areas. You know what we want? We want the throne of Caesar Augustus areas. We love those areas. But this tells us something. This tells us that what our culture actually elevates may not be exactly what God says is most important. And it also tells us, look, this, this also tells us that when heaven is on the move, there is reason to hope no matter what situation we may find ourselves in, no matter how our interior life may look, no matter how our relationships may be, no matter what situation we may be in. Christmas is the reminder. God doesn't shy away from the real. He purposefully steps into it. And he creates something far more beautiful than we could ever imagine which should be great reason for us to take hope and courage from. But I just in the remaining moments we have here, I just want to note a couple things for us to consider, especially as we move towards Christmas. See, the significance of Christmas, when we look at what actually occurred, it reminds us of a couple things. One is that God's love is able to transform the ordinary into extraordinary. God's love is able to transform what we would consider ordinary into something that is extraordinary. 
This is so important for us to recognize. Because, listen, even John, John said it in his opening of his gospel, and he said, listen, the word was made flesh, and, and he dwelt among us. And what he was trying to say was, there was something of the divine, beautiful, ideal qualities of God that stepped into the very ordinary, we might think, skin and bones of a human being. You know what that does? First of all, that elevates humanity to a level that is unparalleled in creation. But secondly, you know what it also does? It it, it reminds us that God's love has the ability to transform how we may be interpreting something. And there may be, if those of us who have claimed him as our own, who have allowed him into our lives, I think this Christmas season it might be worth for us to ask the question, what is it that God is asking us to love? That we have deemed too ordinary to deserve our attention and affection. To deserve something of our devotion. What are the areas, perhaps, it might be our circumstances, the place we might be in, it might be something going on within us. But if we step in and allow his love to penetrate our soul and we begin to labor with him in the ordinary places of our lives, the mundane, the tedious, the inconvenient, those areas, it changes everything. Mary. Mary was no longer just a teenage girl from Nazareth the minute she said yes. Her humble setting was no longer a humble setting. It was now the seat of the merciful king. Her marriage was no longer any marriage. Her marriage was now used to usher into something that would produce life not just in their midst, but life through their lives. You understand this? Her husband was no longer just her husband. You could, when we allow God's love to flow into our lives, you know what we cannot say any longer? Just. It's, I just. I just do this. I'm not that. It's just what it is. No, no, no. If, if actually, if God's involved, then he is able to transform it into something truly extraordinary. Our entire lives, our marriages, our careers, our homes, our friendships, they, they are meant to become a labor of love. It becomes an expression of new life. It's being birthed within us and through us. Mary alone was simply a poor Jewish girl in Nazareth. But I'll tell you what, that is not how she is remembered. There's nothing poor about the mother of the Savior of the world. There's nothing to seek to avoid of the person who was used by God in such an amazing way. And you know what she did? What we would deem the ordinary acts of a mother. It's an unbelievable thing. See, God's love is able not just to transform the ordinary into extraordinary. You know what it does? It is able to transform the insignificant into something that is actually quite significant. The story of Jesus' birth, look, it juxtaposes. Do you see it? The great emperor of Rome, 
with the insignificant family from Nazareth. The great power figure in human history with the one who would emanate what true power looks like. Not because of title or position or might, but because of what was true about him. The birth of Christ, among other things, reminds us that we live in a culture that tells us what is most important actually may not be exactly what God is trying to do in our lives. And it's not too different. It's not too different. If we could think of it this way, listen. When God is on the move, he seems to operate differently than we might expect. We are to be careful to not despise the day of small beginnings. Because he came, somebody said it afterwards, it's fascinating, God's power operated stealthily, subtly, unknowingly. And if that is how the birth of Christ came into the world, if you could hear this, That is how his salvation in our lives oftentimes comes as well. If we would expect in the celebrated places for him to show up, we might be missing out how he is trying to show up in the places we would rather hide, in the mangers of our lives, in places that are messy and dirty, that might be embarrassing for others to know about, but it might be the place that we might recognize he is working there. He is working there. Rarely does he blast the trumpet. It's more like a still small voice. You want everyone to see this. Will you pay attention here? Will you allow what you think is insignificant, what you would rather hide Will you allow me to operate there? And you know what happens when we do? And we open ourselves up. We say, come. Come to every room, God. Come into every area of my life. Come into the ugly. Come into the real areas of my life. Come. I welcome you here. You know what we see? We don't see one who's coming in embarrassing or shaming or spotlighting. We see one who is tender, who is gentle, who is wanting to breathe life. And we... We who do that, we get to experience what it is like for these words on an ancient text to become words written in our soul. And we who might feel insignificant all of a sudden understand that the most significant person in the world decided to birth himself in us. The most beautiful person has ever walked this world, decided to share their beauty with us. And we become a reflection of it. It's an amazing thing because when we understand that, we understand that God's love transformed pain into praise, into celebration, into authentic joy, real joy. In Mary's case, she had the pain of a less than stable pregnancy on the move. She had the pain of a painful delivery without her friends, relatives, and comforts. She had that pain. But the joy of having the child was far beyond anything pain could deliver. The joy that comes on the other side of that journey, well, it's hard to explain. I, I, personally, I did not personally experience it, but I can tell you, having seen it on the front row, It is not ideal. It's real. 
so is the joy. And that joy is cause to rejoice and to be, consider oneself wealthier than we could ever imagine. <laughs> it is what Jesus, many years later, he would say to those who were listening to him, he would tell them, listen, it's as if um, there's a woman who in John 16, 21, he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. That, that painful hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Some would say, I remember the anguish. But when God's invited in into the areas that are painful, he does not leave us in the pain. He takes us to the joy. He takes us to the joy. He truly, truly does. May he do that. May he birth new life. May he, may he reconfigure how we walk through perhaps these remaining days into the Christmas season. May he be the one who does something new, something worth celebrating, something that transforms our lives from the inside out converts our mangers into his throne. In a moment, we're going to receive our time of giving. We're going to close on our, just one more song, but I'd love to pray. Ask for his blessing. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you are, you are the God who lovingly, gently, and tenderly steps into our lives you do not seek to shame. You said it. You said it, Jesus. You did not come to condemn. You came to breathe new life, everlasting life, that anyone who would call on you would become sons and daughters of the Most High. So I pray that you would help us make room for you in our lives, invite you, and give us the courage to welcome you in to the places we might deem ordinary, insignificant, and painful. And we pray that you would do what you love to do. Would you transform all of it? And would you do something beautiful in our midst? We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.